Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church at truthmatterschurch.org. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus told the believers in Philadelphia that he is the one who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Today we examine this statement and find ourselves deep in the Old Testament to get a more solid understanding of what Jesus was referring to. Leading our study, here is Pastor Alex Cantaroja. So let's pick it up in Revelation 3. We'll read verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Pretty action-packed letter, but we're going to be spending our time really on one verse and then looking at other scriptures to help us bring us insight into this claim that Jesus made. So let's look at verse 7 one more time. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. So we've covered the last past couple of studies, the first part of verse 7. And now we're going to be focused on the latter part of verse 7. When Jesus makes makes the claim as not only having the key of David, but he also claims to be the one who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens. So we're going to be spending our study looking further into this latter claim. So I want to ask us a question. What is Jesus going to open and no one will shut? And what is Jesus shut and no one's going to open? Remember when he says he has the key of David, And the only time in Scripture besides Revelation or in this particular letter that key and David was used was in Isaiah 22's prophecy. And Isaiah 22 prophecy was about the Father giving the key or the authority of the throne or the house of David and put it on his shoulders. So it was a prophecy of Messiah. So we learned that this was verbatim. Because even in the Isaiah 22 prophecy, when the father was proclaiming that he will set on his shoulders the house of David, and when he opens, no one will shut, and when he shuts, no one opens. And Jesus is pretty much saying verbatim what his father said in Isaiah 22. So in this prophecy, the subject is the key of the house of David. So if you're taking notes, the house of David, which is part of the Davidic covenant, 
the Davidic kingdom are all talking about the same thing. So this, what we've learned is when Jesus, uh, the prophecy of Isaiah 22 and Jesus utter it, utters it here verbatim, that this is a subject or the subject in this prophecy is the Davidic kingdom promised to David. So in other words, when Jesus claims to have the key of David and as one who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens, this is to be directly understood as having full authority of opening and closing the kingdom of David. Do we get that? When Jesus has the key of David and claims to have the key of David, and he claims to be the one who opens and no one will shut and shuts and no one opens, the primary subject of that prophecy is the kingdom of David. He can open the kingdom of David and he can shut the kingdom of David. That's pretty straightforward. But as I was saying in our introductory comments, is that it? Is it just to say that and that's it? Is it a catchy phrase just, just, just to say Jesus has authority and let's move on? Or does scripture tell us more? And with that, we're going to look at what other insights does scripture give us into this claim? And as I mentioned this, what does this mean that's right before our eyes? Who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens. So what we'll do is we'll look further into this claim by first looking at this verse in its original language. And then we're going to cross-reference other scriptures parables to see what we find out sound good so let's look at opens opens is the greek verb anoigo and it means to open or break something open and open or anigo anoigo and depending on context it means to open something so like you know the wise men who brought treasure when they came to visit the 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 child jesus and they brought a treasure trust to present gifts, they opened, Oniogo, that treasure chest to present the gifts to Jesus. Or when the opening of the tombs following his death and resurrection, I think we're familiar of this kind of obscure resurrection account after Jesus rose from the dead. It says there were certain saints from the Old Testament who rose from the dead and even walked the streets. The verb there about the tombs opened is oniogo. Also opens, depending on context, it can mean like the heavens being opened. Like when the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended like a dove and remained on Jesus at his baptism, the heavens were oniogo, literally opened. And the Holy Spirit manifested himself as a dove and remained on Jesus. And oniogo can also mean, depending on context, like the opening of one's eyes or ears or tongue. So when Jesus healed people with, let's say if they were blind or deaf or mute, when Jesus healed them, when he opened their eyes, he oniogo, their eyes, he opened their ears, he opened their mouth so that they can speak. But one of the things I want us to catch from this verb, it's literally happening. It's just the context will tell us, well, what is happening? And we just looked at some of these various examples. So right there, just kind of keep that in the back of our mind. He who opens, Jesus is going to open something, not just a catchy phrase. He's going to open something. Just like the heavens were opened, just like the treasure chests were opened, 
Just like when Jesus opened his mouth to proclaim and teach parables, it's not just a catchy phrase. Something opened. On the flip side, shut is the opposite Greek verb, kleo. And it means to close, shut, or lock up. So shut or kleo, depending on context, that can mean to close something like a gate. Let's say there was a gate. If you're going to close it, you're literally going to close a gate. Or if you have a door of the house and it's open, you're going to kleo, shut it. Another thing kleo could mean, and it's also used, when people are prevented from entering the kingdom of heaven. And we see that in Matthew 23, 13. And here's what Jesus said there. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut, you kleo off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And another example of Cleo, close the heavens. Like you can close the heavens. So like Elijah, for example, when he shut, he Cleo the sky so that it did not rain for three and a half years. But are we kind of getting the gist here? These Greek verbs, depending on context, something is literally happening. It's not just saying Jesus has authority and let's praise Jesus and move on. So besides the prophetic context of Isaiah 22, Jesus has the keys of the house of David and authority to open the house of David and no one can shut and shut the house of David and no one open. So are you kind of getting this a little bit? The house of David is going to have a door or a gate and Jesus is going to open it for some people and he's going to close it for some people. Not just figurative. And we're trying to look at scripture for more insight. And I mentioned this and one more time, much of our Lord's teaching in the parables and much of the parables was concerning the kingdom of God and end times. So if you're taking notes, the kingdom of God is equivalent to the kingdom of David, is equivalent to the kingdom of heaven. They're equivalent. They're speaking about the same thing. So whenever there's an opportunity to cross-reference a parable with end times implications, we're going to go there. And that is the case with this claim. And we're all familiar with the narrow door account. Amen? And I'm going to read Luke's account of this. So what we're trying to do now is like, okay, Jesus made this claim as one who opens and no one shuts and who shuts and no one opens. And when we've just looked at the Greek for both open and shut, it's not just a catchy phrase. It's a verb and something's happening. And it's manifesting itself depending on whatever the context was. So we're looking now, okay, what is behind this claim. And we know it is directly related to the kingdom of David. So let's look at this parable of the narrow door that Jesus taught. And we'll, we'll read Luke's account, Luke 13, and we'll pick it up in verse 22. And he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proclaiming on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few that are being saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, Cleo, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me all you evildoers. In that place, 
there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves are being thrown out and they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God and behold, some are last who will be first and some who are first will be last. I'm telling you guys, this parable gives us great insight into the end times. So we're going to spend a bit of time expositing this parable with what we've been doing with the rest of Scripture. So Jesus was asked the question. So someone came up to him, to Jesus, and asked him, Lord, are there just a few that are being saved? Let's just say it was a man. Went up to Jesus and asked this question. Are there just a few being saved? Let me ask us a question. Be saved from what? See, I'm telling us, that's an oversimplification. Yeah, hell is the ultimate abode. Saved from what? See, we say these things. What judgment are you talking about? We know that sinners will be judged and damned, but what is that? You just die, and then you just wake up and are judged and go to hell, and that's it? May I tell us and suggest to us, it's not that straightforward. What does Paul say over and over as his gospel declares? There is a great day coming, a day of wrath, a day of vengeance, even in the Old Testament. Is that just for a small group of people that who happened to live at that period of time? I'm telling us when we are going through this study, it's not just judgment in hell. If, it were, if that were it, that would be even a mercy. There is wrath before the official judgment and the final hell. We're going to get into those details as we're going to let the scripture tell us what's in store for the ungodly. But Jesus answers the question with a command. He says, strive to enter the narrow door. Okay. Narrow is stenos. And it also means straight or it's a smaller restrictive. And door is thura. And here in the Greek, it could mean like an entrance or a gate. Jesus said that many will try and enter the straight, small, restrictive entrance or gate will not be able. It's chuo. They're not going to be strong enough to enter into the gate. And he goes on to say, once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Okay, I'm going to ask us questions. Who's the head of the house in this parable? Jesus, because he says, Lord, open up to us, and he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. The head of the house in this parable is the Lord Jesus. What house is being spoken of? We've already covered this. David, the house of David, the kingdom of David, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. What will the head of the house do that can't be undone? Cleo the door, right? Pretty straightforward. From here, and I'm going to remind us of some of our rules of engagement, the principles that have been guiding our study since we even took on this journey. I'm going to remind us of what we're doing, and then we're going to, I'm going to ask us some more questions. So here's what I'm doing. Remember, we're not going to add or take away from Scripture. Far be it from me, far be it from you that we do that. Far be it from us that we take Scripture out of context. That's my prayer. I ask for your prayers as well. I don't want to do that. Remember this one, thou shalt interpret scripture with the literal fulfillment. It's never just fancy words on a page. 
It's communicating God's will and plan, and whatever it's communicating, it will happen and manifest itself in the physical. We're going to do that even in the parables. And we're not going to over-spiritualize the scripture by just saying, oh, the narrow door is just, you know, Jesus is the only way. You need Christ, and let's move on our merry way. Otherwise, you'll be shut out. You're kind of oversimplifying and over-spiritualizing the text. We're not going to do that. So this is what's going to guide us when I ask these next questions. Let's look at verse 25. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Okay, remembering those principles. Who's you in this parable? The guy who asked. Okay, he asked this question. So when Jesus says, and you begin to stand outside, let's say his name was, oh man, I don't want to throw anyone's name out. Jezebel. His name was Jezebel. Jezebel, when he says, and you begin, Jezebel, you begin to knock. Okay? Look, we're not taking that out of context. This was a conversation. Jesus was asked a question by Jezebel, and Jesus gave this response. So you is the person who asked this question. Begin to stand outside and knock on the door. So this, let's say Jezebel, saying, and you stand outside the door. So there's going to be a door. And then you're going to knock on the door and saying, Lord, open to us. So he's not alone. Okay? So it's kind of like in this parable, this person is standing before a door and knocking it. And then it goes, so you can say like this person, there's people there and there's this door and there's this knocking. Lord, open to us. Listen, it says, saying, Lord, open to us. Now here, this is a quote. Jesus is quoting this person, open to us. Then he will answer and say to you, here's another quote from our Lord Jesus. I do not know where you are from. Here's where I'm getting at. This parable is also prophecy and this dialogue are the very words that will be uttered when the house is on earth at the end of the age. Let me say that again. In this parable, Jesus is quoting this person who asked the question, and Jesus is quoting his response. That will come to fruition at the end. It's not just communicating some eternal truths about heaven and hell, and that's it. This is prophecy of a dialogue that will happen at the end. You follow? Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. Lots of nuggets on this, truth, this verse. Again, Jesus is quoting them. We ate and drank in your presence. Who's we? Specifically, let, let's stick to the setting here. The person who asked and whoever was in that city or village or town. So we is the person who asked and those who were with him. And he, he says, your presence. Whose presence? Who's your? Who's your? Jesus ate and drank this is past tense so when this dialogue happens this already happened we ate and drank in your presence meaning by this time when they uttered these words they already had a meal with jesus present and your presence is enopios and it means literally in sight or in front of or before your eye or your face it's like jesus lord 
opened the door. We ate and drank in your presence. We've seen you. We know who you are. Now, let me, let me ask this again. Is this figurative or literal? Well, I already kind of give us. And the context tells us. He says, you taught, past tense, in our streets. Who's you and what streets? Jesus taught in their streets. We ate and drank in your presence and you taught, past tense, in our streets. That's why, Lord, we know who you are. You came to our city and our town, opened opened the door to us, for we even ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. Yeah. No, look, listen. Look, Jeremy, it's starting to spin, isn't it? You're like, wait a minute. So if this is first century, and this is prophecy of a dialogue that's going to happen in the future, is the wheel starting to turn a little bit? Now, in context, Jesus was passing through city to city and village to village, and he was en route to Jerusalem. And Jesus literally taught in their streets while he visited there, and he even shared a meal with them in his presence. When Jesus was going from town to town, this person who asked this question, Jesus was there and taught in their streets and they even shared a meal. He's like, open to us. I know who you are. We ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. The person who asked this question and others in that city, in the village with him, will utter these these same words. This person who said these words, who asked this question, is not alone in the future the same people are going to have the same response. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Where you are from, depart from me, you, all you evildoers. He will say, telling you, this is prophecy. Jesus will utter these very words. I tell you to the person who asked the question and those with him, I will tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. Jesus will utter these exact words to this person and those of that city and village when he returns and establishes his kingdom on earth. Jesus is telling this person, asking the question, that he and others will be rejected and not be allowed to enter his kingdom, but instead they will be taken to another place. 28. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That place. What place? See, we're like, well, there's hell, lake of fire, Hades, right? Hell, Hades is is pretty much what we're associating it with. But then there's the the lake of fire. What's that place? We're going to look. To scripture to tell us what that place is and i'm gonna give us a clue and this is what i do i'm like okay when is weeping and gnashing used in the same verse let's start there and weeping and gnashing is used seven times in the new testament and here's what weeping and gnashing and the place is associated with here's the place where this person who asked the question and those with them and they're going to be instead taken to this place it's called outer darkness it's called the furnace of fire It's a place where the hypocrites are. It's outside the kingdom of God. So the person who asked this question and some others of that city and village that heard the teachings of Jesus in their streets, shared a meal with him, witnessed his miracles, will be kept out of the kingdom and instead be cast to that place of outer darkness, a furnace of fire where the hypocrites are, and it's outside the kingdom of God. Here's where I'm getting at. 
in order for this conversation to take place when the kingdom comes on earth, right? That person who lived that first century, let's just say it was sometime in, you know, 80, 27 to 30, in order for that prophecy and that quote that Jesus is quoting them and Jesus is quoting back to them to happen, what does that tell us must happen before the kingdom of God is on earth? They must be raised from the dead. They must be raised. So by the time the kingdom is on earth and Jesus uttered these words to them, that person that asked this question and those in the town must have been raised by this time. Otherwise, how is this prophecy going to be fulfilled? And we've covered this in one of our studies. The great resurrection of all mankind is in that seventh trumpet. And in the seventh trumpet, it says the dead will rise and then there's the dead to righteousness and the dead to judgment. And that is when we get to the seventh trumpet. Which means, this is already telling us, that the kingdom is going to come sometime after the seventh trumpet in order for this prophecy and this quote and this dialogue to come to pass. When Jesus is quoting someone, he's quoting someone. And when Jesus is quoting himself, he's quoting himself. This dialogue will take place when the head of the house is ready to stand up and shut the door. And the reference of the resurrection, and I remember um, before I started to get into studies and whatnot, and I tried to make the scripture fit my view, this passage in John 5 is pretty straightforward. And this is the passage that tells us of that great resurrection at once. Now, I won't get into the rapture until we get to that point, but let's, I want to reference the great mass resurrection. And that's in John 5, 25 through 29. And Jesus says there, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And he goes, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs, all, will hear his voice and will come forth who did the good deeds to, to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. All who are in the tombs. Not some, not just the non-church people, all who are in the tombs. Meaning, when Jesus utters this word, whoever has lived from the time of Adam to the time Jesus uttered these words, there's going to be this great resurrection. And there's two. Resurrection, he says here in verse 28, do not marvel this, for an hour is coming in which all, in, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life. So in this mass resurrection, there's going to be a group that will be to a resurrection of life. And then those who also heard his voice and came out of the tomb, who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And this coincides with the seventh trumpet. And the, and the rapture is part of this. So we're going to get there when we get to that point of the study. But in order for those first century Jews not to be allowed to enter the kingdom and to be shut out of it, they must be raised by this time. So John 5, this prophecy, when the Son of Man utters his voice, that when this comes to pass, by this time the resurrection has happened. And 
that person who asked this question and those with them will be raised as well and will be rejected and shut out from the kingdom. Let's look at the latter part of verse 28. I'm telling you, see, this has been before our eyes this whole time. Let's look at verse 28. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. Okay. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets, this is prophecy again. When you see those who are knocking, Lord, open to us are going to see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the Old Testament prophets. When you see. When. This is future. This is at the end of the age now. By this time, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets have been resurrected too in order for them to see them. And these will be in the kingdom of God on earth. I'm telling you guys, it's right here. This mass resurrection will also include if not already, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets. And when they see the kingdom of God is on earth, they're being shut out. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the prophets are in the kingdom. They see them, but they're shut out. And Jesus says, away from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. The unfaithful Israelites, here's the truth. They will be able to see with their own eyes. They're going to see when Jesus went from town to town and he performed miracles among them. They're going to see with their own eyes, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, while they themselves will be thrown out of the place of darkness, furnace of fire, along with the rest of the hypocrites and shut out of the kingdom. Okay, can I give us a conjecture here? I'm telling you, when I'm I'm knee deep, I'm like, wow. I'm telling you, I've, I've been pausing in cellas throughout this study. It's like, wow, Lord. I'm starting to get a glimpse of what's been before our eyes the whole time. And take it for what it says and believe it. Don't challenge it. When he says, when you will see, and when he's quoting, they're going to see, and this is what they're going to be saying. We just, we, we accept it, we believe it. And then we start to see what's or have an idea of what's in store. But here's a conjecture here, okay? When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets, okay, here's where, this is a conjecture, so you can take it for what it is. And I'm going to kind of give us a little spoiler. I'm kind of tipping my hand a little bit here. But when we get to the next chapter, in Revelation 4, and John is taken up to heaven, and he sees the vision of the Father's throne, And around his throne, he sees 24 thrones. And he sees 24 elders sitting on those 24 thrones. And those 24 elders are clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. And I've read a lot of interesting commentaries trying to explain or guess what what that 24 elders might be. Here, can I tell you? It's 24 elders. There's 24 thrones. And they're wearing white garments and a golden crown on their head. There's 24 of them in there. It's not the 12 apostles and the 12 disciples. Or there's, I was like, there's 24. There's 24 thrones around the throne. That's what the scripture says. That's what I believe. And it's interesting. And people say, well, the, the 24 elders is representative of the church or representative of the apostles in the church. They're some crazy stuff. I'm like, wait, 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 w
we believe the scripture yeah sometimes it's figurative language sometimes our lord teaches in parables sometimes it's apocalyptic but we have to use scripture with scripture to understand what it's communicating and there's a literal fulfillment there's 24 elders and there's 24 thrones end of story can i suggest to us now this is conjecture who are they i think this verse luke 13:28 might have a nugget of truth if you were to ask me, where am I inclined right now? Who are those 24 elders? They're the prophets of Scripture. The Jeremiah's, the Isaiah's, David. You, you, you go down the list. Which means, by the time we get to Revelation 4, they had to have been resurrected and glorified by this time. And that's before the seventh trumpet. Where does this fit? I just mentioned earlier, after Jesus rose from the dead, tombs were open and certain Old Testament saints came out. Can I suggest to us it's 24 of them? And now they're sitting on the throne? Yeah. But look, I didn't... I just said, look, where does it fit? The seventh trumpet is still ahead of it. So that mass resurrection of everyone isn't there yet, but these 24 elders are already in heaven around the throne, and they cast their thrones before the, th- the Father and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who is, who was, and who is to come. And who more fitting, I'm getting goosebumps, to sit on the 24 thrones. We know the Father picked them than his faithful prophets who were stoned and killed for doing their duty and their task. I'm telling you, it fits. That's a conjecture. You take it for what it is. But that's where I'm, in, that's where I'm at right now with that piece, okay? And this doesn't include the apostles, okay? They're not part of the 24. Why? The apostles instead will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Our Lord said it here. You know, the context here, you know, when Jesus, when they're talking about how hard it is for a rich man to to be saved, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. And then the Lord said, you know, for the disciples that rock their world, because in their mind, you know, if you're a Jew and you're following the law and you have the material blessings that follow, that God's hand must surely be upon you. And if a rich man, you know, you you have possessions, you must be doing good in that space. And you're saying, no, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than someone who's trying to obey the law and has riches to show for it here's here then here's what peter asked jesus peter said to him behold we have left everything and followed you what then will there be for us and jesus said to them truly truly i say to you who's you who's you peter (laughs) peter said to him behold we have left everything the apostles and peter hey we have left everything to follow you jesus and jesus said to them truly truly i say to you my disciples and apostles, you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So right there, the apostles are not part of the 24 elders. They have their own role that the Lord Jesus will give them. So when Jesus mentions Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the prophets, these do not include the 12 apostles. So if you were to ask me the 24 elders are, I would say that they are the prophets of God, many of whom were stoned and killed and remained faithful to their task. So here's, um, let me, I'm going to ask you some brownie points, okay? Well, when Peter said, Lord, we have left everything to follow you. Well, let's just say the original 12. Well, we know Judas was the betrayer. 
Is he going to sit on one of the thrones? Of course not. Jesus said, it is better for you not to be born. So I want to give a brownie points for us. Who is going to sit in Judas's place? The, uh, the Apostle Paul. So who was his original audience? It was the Jews. And then the time came when they aggressively resisted him, and then he shook the dust off his feet as protested him and saying, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. But he went to the Jews first. When he went from town to town with Barnabas, they would go to the synagogue and try to persuade the Jews through the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. I'm going to suggest to us, the Apostle Paul, when he says there is a crown waiting before me, which I, my, Lord, my Lord will give me, then that would be a crown to rule on one of the 12 thrones. This is some pretty cool stuff. This, this, is, this is there for us. This is all there. Are we starting to get a hint? There's more. It's right in our face. It's right there. And don't explain it away and don't make your view twist it. That's what it says. So that's what it is. Now, here's another one, okay? And they will come from east and west and north and from south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. Okay, who's they? And they will come from east and west and north and south. Who are they? Is it just like, yeah, we, so we, we think, oh, it's just the whole world, east, west, north, south, right? Just, just kind of blanket. Is, that's how we probably read it, right? East and west and north and south. They're like, okay, well, well okay, so they're, it's just a fancy way to say everyone. See, that's where our mind starts to go. Here's a hint. Here's a hint. How, 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 do, how are we going to know? Remember, you've got to use Scripture. So well, guess what I did? I said, okay, when is north, south, east, and west were used? Where does it take me? To Genesis. Like, okay. Where in Genesis? Okay, well, at least more specifically, Jacob's dream. Okay. What does this have to tell us? Remember, I'm, what I'm doing and I, I would say this is, this is, you know, it would just be judicious of us when we study Scripture. Take Scripture with itself and see what it says. You know, taking Key and David, where does it take us? You know, when, um, you know when, 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 and I'm not explaining things the way you take it literally, where does it take us? North, south, east, west. When were those four points of the compass used? And it took me to Jacob's dream. Okay, what does it have to say? And I'm sure we're familiar with this. But let me read it. Uh, Genesis 28. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and laid it down in that place. He had a dream and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to the heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth. Here it is. And you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. 
So there's already a lot of nuggets on this truth, on, on this passage, but I'm just going to focus on verses 13 and 14. So let's look at that one more time. And behold, the Lord, God the Father, Yahweh, stood above it, the ladder, in this vision, and said to Jacob, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the land in which you lie. Here's Jacob taking this nap, put a rock under his head. He goes, I will give it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, in your descendants, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So in this vision that Jacob received, God reaffirmed the Abrahamic covenant to him. Abraham is his grandfather. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob is having a dream. And it is God reaffirming the covenant that he made with his grandfather, Abraham. And I'd like for us to just briefly go back to the Abrahamic covenant. And you remember when we did our introduction, I was like, man, there are some things we need to make sure we have at least some grounding. You know, we need to have some Old Testament knowledge. We have to have the Abrahamic covenant was one of them, the Davidic covenant. You know, we need to have some backdrop of some, just some Old Testament, I guess you can say major kind of pillars or markers to help us understand, you know, how God is working out and, his redemptive will and plan. And one of them was the Abrahamic covenant. But let's, let's look at that covenant one more time in Genesis 15. We'll look at the first eight verses. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear, Abram, I am your shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram, Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house. He's trying to say one not born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man shall not be your heir, but one will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And then he took Abram outside and he he said, look, now look towards the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord and he recognized to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of your of the Chaldeans to give you this land and possess it. And he said, O oh Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? And then in verses 9 through 17, God proceeded to enter into his covenantal ceremony with Abram, and he also prophesied of the 400 year enslavement of his offspring. But now I want to pick it up again in verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. So, okay, now stay with me. How did we get here? Because Jesus says they will come from the north, from the south, and the east, and the west, and will recline at the table with Abraham. And just look, you know, just looking at when those four points of the compass were mentioned, took us to Jacob's dream and Jacob's dream the Abrahamic covenant was reaffirmed and now we're going to the Abrahamic covenant to just be reminded of what that is and by the time we get to what I what we just read in Genesis 15 God first appeared to Abram back in Genesis 12 and he made him promises this is what he told Abram the very first time he's saying he he appeared to him in vision he says I will make you a great nation 
I will bless you, I will make your name great, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and all of the families of the earth will be blessed. Those promises, and when God first appeared to Abram, was in chapter 12. When we get to chapter 15, God reappeared to Abram, reaffirmed what he said, and this time he entered into a covenantal ceremony with Abram. And here we have the official ratification of the Abrahamic covenant when God you know, walked through, right, what was it, as a boiling pot or whatever, among the split animals, and he walked through it, and it, you know, it, was, a, it was how they ratified that covenant. But part of the Abrahamic covenant is really two major parts, that Abraham will be as numerous as the stars of the sky, his descendants, and that they will be given land. That's the Abrahamic covenant, that those are the two major pieces. And that land, it, the scripture tells us, spans from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates. And to kind of give us an illustration and a good way to say, okay, well, where does that span? Well, a good way to look at it is when the 12 tribes of Israel were allotted land. And when we get to the book of Joshua, so the Abrahamic covenant, if you want to know, okay, when he says, and you will come from the east and you will spread out to the east and west and north and south, we know that it covers the whole land of ancient Israel, okay? This is the Holy Land. Now, we know that Jerusalem is the epicenter, and we know that's where the Temple Mount is, and that's where the, the, the festivals and the feasts are celebrated. But this is the land of ancient Israel. So Israel was reborn. This is just some footnotes. They were reborn as a nation on May 14, 1948, but its territory has expanded over the last 70 years. And part of the promised land that's still not reclaimed, that is still part of the one on the left, which was allotted to the 12 tribes, are still parts of Jordan, parts of Syria, and parts of Lebanon right now. Abraham's descendants will come from the north, south, east, and west. And at least geographically, it would span ancient Israel. Do we get that? How about here in the United States? We're in the west. See, did he put you in there? Yeah, look, we're coming from the west. Uh, don't do that quite yet. You know, you know we're going to levitate over there. We're going to be raptured and be over there. Like, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. When it says they will recline with Abraham, right? Just, just, just wait. Let's just let's first stick to its geographic, scriptural geographic location, ancient land of Israel. And he's saying, you see, the stars, they will, and you will spread out. Did he say spread out here in the United States? They will spread out up to what's now Lebanon today, right? To you know. Judah, southern Israel today. Back to the verse at hand. Here's the back to the verse at hand. When Jesus says, and they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God and behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. So the four points of a compass, east, west, north, south, took us to the Abrahamic covenant and that was restated to Jacob as part of Jacob's dream. So they, here's the they, okay? I went through all that. Here's the they. The they are Abraham's descendants. Did we get that? Because it was, complete, it was connected, took us to Jacob's dream, which the, the Abrahamic covenant was reconfirmed. We know that part of that Abrahamic covenant was that he'll be given descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And we know that also he was given land and we saw a little graphic on what that might be. So the they, in its immediate context, is Abraham's descendants. 
will come from the north, from the south, and from the east of the west, from the land of ancient Israel. Now, let me enter that here to see if it's more clear, okay? Okay, uh, let's look at the same verse. Now let's plug in what we just said. Verse 29, And Abraham's descendants will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some of Abraham's descendants who are last will be first and some of Abraham's descendants who are first will be last. Here's a truth. When the kingdom is established, I'm, I'm telling you, we're coming across all these truths about the end times and the coming kingdom. When the kingdom is established, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the Old Testament prophets, and Abraham's descendants will sit and recline in the temple in the kingdom of God in the promised land, and that is in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that God made with Abraham, going all the way even back to Genesis chapter 12. Okay, right, okay. Abraham's descendants will come from north, south, east, west. Okay, which ones? Thank you for joining us today at Truth Matters Church. And join us next time for part two of this message as we finish our deep dive look at Jesus' statement that he is the one who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. If you've missed any part of our expository study in Revelation, you can find them all archived at our website, truthmatterschurch.org. And if you're blessed by the teachings you're hearing, please consider supporting Truth Matters Church with a financial donation. You can give anytime online at truthmatterschurch.org. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.